Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please play responsibly. For help, visit MDGamblingHelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. It is quite certain that uh, man is born with a certain functioning, a certain way of functioning, a certain pattern of behavior. And uh, that is expressed in the form of archetypal images or archetypal forms. For instance, the way in which a man should behave is given by an archetype. And therefore, you see, the primitives tell such stories. Uh, a great deal of education goes through storytelling. The world hangs on a thin thread. And that is the psyche of man. Nowadays, we are not threatened by elementary catastrophes. There is no such thing as an age bomb. That is all man's doing. Yeah. We are the great danger. The psyche is the great danger. What if something goes wrong with the psyche? And <clears throat> so you see, it is demonstrated to us in our days what, what the power of the psyche is of man. How important it is to know something about it, but we know nothing about it. By those clips, you know we'll be getting Jungian on your ass here at AM Byte. Indeed, we will be all about C.G. Jung in this eternal now. And we should be considering the shadow puke reality has become in 2020. As I keep saying, this is the best time to be awake. But as Jung said, he who looks outward dreams. He who looks inward awakens. Few today are looking inward. Most are just staring at the abyss and hoping the abyss saves them or hands them canned slogans and woke instructions on how to cope when in truth we can all thrive if we just have a conversation with our psyche and mainline our higher selves. Last night, 
I woke up and I saw me staring down at myself. I think it was a future me. Could something like that be possible? Time travel? It seemed like I was there to, to help me or warn me or something. Maybe it was an alternate self communicating with you from an alternate universe. As Jung also explained, a million zeros joined together do not, unfortunately, add up to one. Ultimately, everything depends on the quality of the individual. But the fatally short-sighted habit of our age is to think only in terms of large numbers and mass organizations. Though one would think that the world had seen more than enough of what a well-disciplined mob can do in the hands of a single madman. There is only one way, and that is your way. There is only one salvation, and that is your salvation. Why are you looking for help? Do you believe it will come from outside? What is to come will be created in you and from you. Hence, look into yourself. Do not compare. Do not measure. No other way is like yours. All other ways deceive and tempt you. You must fulfill the way that is in you. Satellite's been up there for thousands of years. What the ancient Hebrews were to Egypt and the early Christians were to Rome, we are now to this corrupt new American empire. It's an ancient fight, Nick. Values of the individual against the supremacy of the state. But hey, keep getting high off social media self-righteousness or mass media fabulous or divide-and-conquer propaganda engineered from wickedness in high places. Don't notice the divine spark in every other human being. Overlook the blatant programming being written in your brain like some Westworld host. Ignore the reality your soul is being fattened for a collective sacrifice to Moloch and Sebek. Everybody just yells and screams at each other. Nobody's civil anymore. Nobody thinks what it's like to be the other guy. You think men like Thomas Wayne ever think what it's like to be someone like me? To be somebody but themselves? They don't. They think that we'll just sit there and take it like good little boys. That we won't werewolf and go wild. Not me and not us. We sons and daughters of the whore Sophia who eat nervous breakdowns for breakfast. We embrace these Gnostic times, this Philip K. Dick world, and a new age of Hermes. Because we're done with the new boss or old boss or any game boss. And we're tired of the tired narrative of Archons who give us the same rhymed history and unoriginal bungles in the jungle. We're writing our own gospel and living our own myth. All to become the best version of ourselves and remember how beautiful we were before they made us forget. I like what follower Busifa said on Twitter. Abolish reality. Defund the Argons. Dethrone the Demiurge. Define dream time. By the power of truth, I, while living, have conquered the universe. So we get Jungian on your ass, and it is truly an honor to have at the Virtual Alexandria, the host of one of my favorite podcasts. That is Laura London, host of the incredible Speaking of Jung. 
Highly recommend you check out her content, a weekly delight of Jungian analysts that provide insights into uncovering the divinity that lies within each one of us. Remember, he who looks inward awakens. Is this all real? Or is it just happening inside my head? Of course it's happening inside your head, Harry. Why should that mean that it's not real? And you'll gain so much in our interview with the wonderful and sapient Laura. A conversational, non-linear at times, and friendly back and forth where we weave in and out of Jungian revelations. For patrons and AB Prime members, it's almost two and a half hours of Red Pill Suppositories. <laughs> we just had a near-life experience! It's not that hard to have a dialogue with the psyche, which is basically what Jung did when he journeyed to find his soul with his guide Simon Magus in the Red Book. What lies at the end is your authentic self, your heroic version, the you that will relate your sacred purpose to heal the universe. This is it. This is what I was created for. This is my destiny. Here are some suggestions for you, and these have worked out for me, even if I still have much work to do. Keep in mind that writing everything down, not on a computer, is the key to any anamnesis. What you bring forth will save you, as the Gospel of Thomas says, but you gotta imprint it in the fabric of reality. Anywho, here they are. One. Start a dream journal. Two, notice and record all your synchronicities. That is God speaking to you. Three, study the Jungian structure of the psyche and find where you exactly are in each of the you of the psyche of each hour. When I know whether it's my shadow or a complex coming at me makes a difference between sanity and gnosis. When a person is insane, as you clearly are, do you know that you're insane? Maybe you're just sitting around, reading guns and ammo, masturbating in your own feces. Do you just stop and go, wow, it is amazing how fucking crazy I really am? Four, pay someone to listen to your shit. As I mentioned in the interview, money is energy. And sometimes that energy is a wall against those around you who serve as the vehicles of the demiurge when you're vulnerable. Alas, that includes family and friends. 5. Use active imagination. Fuck, use your imagination because that is your true image of God and it's the only weapon in the war against reality. Well, I've wrestled with reality for 35 years, Doctor, and I'm happy to state I finally won out over it. Six, find some sort of meditation, whether it's self-hypnotism, walking contemplation, walking outside at dusk listening to Cocteau Twins, Zen practices, or even playing I Spy with your toddler. In other words, give your unconscious some arm space. Seven, Embrace altered states of consciousness as your first commandment. The second commandment should be ecstasy. Do you now believe in God? Uh, now? I know. I, needn't, I don't need to believe. 
I know. Eight, train yourself to accept that every time you feel negative or angry at someone else, you've exposed a part of you you don't want to deal with. No exceptions, because in countless incarnations, you've been there and done that, Carpo Greats. But that you were and are everybody and everything that has ever been or will ever be. With these, you'll begin receiving downloads from the aeons. Although it might take some time, but know that outside of time, you're already a Buddha writing a better narrative than that of the Archons. I hope this helps, my beloved true seekers. To end, here is a wonderful quote by my friend Ian, which addresses all the social and civic unrest from a Gnostic standpoint. I hope this helps too. As Richard Phillips Feynman said, the first principle is that you must not fool yourself, and you are the easiest person to fool. Where should my allegiance lie when the cops brutalize and murder the lapsed addict and people cry for justice? Where should my allegiance lie when the looter kills the retired police chief, grandfather and public servant? What should I do when guilt and anger are the defining characteristics of history and race? A narrative that overwhelms the psyche. Emotional toxin defiling consciousness straining to be free. I too am a human being. Terrible, beautiful, indifferent, lazy, industrious, scared, confused, honest and dishonest, innocent and corrupt. Seeking, always seeking, to know where the sacred lies. In theology or philosophy or politics, here can be no Gnostic creed. No real rallying cry, except to try and know that sacred within you, that transcends it all, is in there somewhere in all of us, trapped in light. Embody it as best you can each day so that your brother and sister can see your light. And if they see it, it might just bring it forth in them too. Or they might crucify you. But once you know, what choice do you really have? The answer is love. This is where the suffering is. This is where the, the injustice is. Bavis or God or whatever you want to call it has to do something for us here. What the fuck good is it? The work has to be done here on earth. Let me ask you this. Where did Jesus do his work? Where did he teach? Led us to the interview with Laura London. In a sort of finding Hermes aspect, I'm still trying to figure out how to come to life in 2020. Especially as so many suffer from mental and emotional distress and the always are failing as much as the narrative of the Archons and their institutions. Passionate.
This is the Aeon Byte interview, and with us we definitely have the pleasure of being joined by Laura London, one of my favorite podcasters uh, from one of my favorite podcasts, Speaking of Jung. Laura, thank you very much for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thanks so much for the invitation. I appreciate it. Pleasure is all ours. Uh, great honor, and always a great honor. We've got the man who's forever Jung. The Moondog Vance. How are you doing, Vance? Who knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men or Moondog? The shadow knows. <laughs> A Jungian comment there. Yes. So I'm doing, I'm doing okay. You know, I'm looking forward to this. I, I love Jung and um, been a fan for many years, and I'm looking forward to learning about uh, Jung a bit more. I think we'll do that. So, Laura, let's start with you, of course. Uh, how did you become interested in Carl Jung? How did I become interested in Jung? Well, that is a long story. I've often thought about it. There was no one uh, incident. There was no one experience. I believe that I heard about him when I was a student at the University of Washington in Seattle, and I took a class called Transpersonal Psychology. And I believe he was mentioned there, but real, my real introduction to him and how I, he kind of consumed my life was because I was in analysis. I've always been interested in psychology. I was a psychology major in college and I, I was interested in psychology before college. And I, when I got out of college, let's see, it was about, Oh, it was only about five years later, I, I, I analysis and there was really nothing wrong. I wasn't going through anything awful. I've just always been very curious about my psyche, the psyche of you know, my family members, everybody around me. I was always interested in human behavior and I didn't seek out a Jungian analyst. Actually, who I started seeing was training to become a Jungian analyst. And I got in, I met her for various other reasons. I was actually having a series of body work sessions with a Heller work practitioner. And the analyst in training was in the same office. And when I finished the body work, I did actually the, the introductory series and then an advanced series. I wanted to continue. I loved coming in once a week and talking and, you know, that safe place that contains space with one other person, with a professional, and to just kind of talk about what was going on with me that we, we kind of can't do with our families or our significant other. And so I started seeing the analyst in training and we didn't talk about Jung. That's another thing that I hope we get into tonight is the difference between the scholarly Jung, uh, the academic Jung, and the Jung that we sort of encounter in analysis. And they're very different. And, and that's becoming clearer and clearer to me as I speak with these analysts that I interview on the podcast. So I was 
in analysis for many, many years with with this woman, and she eventually became an analyst. And then I moved away, but I was still within driving distance. So I would drive two hours each way wow. once a week to to have my session, to have my analytic hour with her. And um, how do I say this? So we again, we didn't talk about Jung. We were I was in analysis, but eventually as the years went on i became more and more interested in what she was doing and so we started talking about these concepts jungian concepts and i found it really interesting so i did dabble in other fields of psychology and and when i was in college we had to study the history of psychology so i was familiar with all these other psychologists and these other kinds of uh, treatments and and you know, the self help movement was really big back then and this was before the internet i'm kind of dating myself but um well i would hang out in bookstores and pick up books in the self-help section, but I also had other interests. I was interested in Buddhism and in the tarot and astrology and UFOs, and I didn't realize that these were all things that Jung was also into. So I became interested in all of these things on my own, and it wasn't until much later when I was well into Jung, that I started to discover that he was considered a mystic and he believed in uh, the spiritual dimension. And he, you know, wrote an essay on Kundalini Yoga. He wrote another essay on UFOs and he studied alchemy and astrology. Uh, he used astrology. His daughter became an astrologer. So I didn't know all that when I first got interested in Jung. He just kind of made the most sense to me. And I never looked back. I have developed quite the disdain for other forms of uh, therapy and other aspects or fields of uh, psychology. And I need to catch myself sometimes um, because of my bias, my very heavy bias. <laughs> so yeah, you're like a Gnostic elitist, but you have passion for it. And we certainly <laughs> want to, uh, I have, um, I have a bias towards Jung and I, I, I admit I've got into arguments with people about this because I, I, I yeah, I'm going to die on the Jung Hill as well. So, and I think we'll make that argument. We certainly want to talk about how people view it. And I think you were talking about what you were doing, getting therapy and having a dialogue with your therapist or, you know, this, mm -hmm. what Jungian analysts is or what, what it entails. But I think that's what really opened my eyes or helped mm -hmm. me out a lot, Laura. I think it was about a year ago. I was listening to your podcast and you said something which was amazing because for a lot of my life, I've been in therapy, AA meetings, mm -hmm. I've been to rehab, blah, blah, blah. I've done mm -hmm. everything and tried everything. And you said at one point, you know, the best thing or something that really strikes at the heart of Jung is saying that there is nothing wrong with us. What we need to do is have a dialogue with our psyche. We're not 
bad or lesser or broken or all these things. Of course, everybody has trauma and everybody's gone through a lot in their life. But if we have a dialogue with our psyche, that's how really the healing starts individuation. And I thought uh, it it helped me. It, is, it was one of those things that there was a spark because um, I don't know if you know Jeff Kripal. He's a professor at Rice oh, University. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I had him on the show and we were talking about uh, his book, Supernatural. And he always mm-hmm. says, don't say that the aliens are embedded with us. We're embedded with them. Just like religious people will say, don't go looking for God. God's right there. He's everywhere. He's the one that's talking. And uh, your idea of how the psyche is always talking to us and we just need to listen and we need to have a conversation. I think that's one of the, you would say, one of the really central points to understanding Jung and how to become individuated. Yes, yes. And individuation is a natural developmental process that we we all go through, but our culture doesn't exactly support it because Jung's concept of individuation is about becoming the person that we were meant to be. Now, the you had mentioned kind of the, the fighting and the arguing, and there are so many different beliefs, stances out there about what is and and how it all works and and even within the jungian community there have been so many splits in jung societies and in jung institutes and so many cities have two because the one split so with individuation let me just finish that um it's the process through which we become more ourselves you know more authentic more distinct from other people and from the collective values, the collective norms. We become an individual and who we uniquely are. And Jung believed how he's kind of different is he believed that we come in here with, we come here with this blueprint and it's kind of our job or our task to discover what that is. And that's not an easy thing to do, um, but I believe that that is my job, is to find out who I am, figure out who I am, and then be who I am. Now, I went through a lot of difficult things this week with, you know, on social media and in just kind of what's going on in the world where the issue of fitting in and doing what everybody else is doing came up in a big way. And I had to remind myself of these things about being true to who I am and my values. Yet we still have to live in society and we don't have to, but we, in order to function, uh, we kind of have to get along, right? To, to survive Uh, unless we live in the woods. And it's interesting. I I just was emailing back and forth with somebody today who she, she's an American and she's living in Zurich now kind of as a recluse. And a part of me really envied her um, to be able to live like that. And maybe someday I will, but for now uh, we're 
got to live by some rules. Um, I don't know where I was going with that, but to individuate is to become who we are. And that doesn't mean to um, kind of mow down everybody in, in, in your path and, <laughs> and live outside of the rules and the law. Not that, but to be who you are in it. And again, that's not an easy thing to do. Talking about, yeah, individuation dialogue with a psych. I think Jung said, we don't have a choice but to individuate, right? And it's a matter of how much pain we want to take. Mm. <laughs> the unconscious is going to get us there. It's how much we're going to resist. Like, uh, well, Yeah, I think that some people don't and resist it and live other, somebody else's life. You know, James Hollis, I was listening to, he's, I've had him on the podcast three times. He was actually my analyst, training analyst, and he's probably the most well-known Jungian analyst alive today, probably because he's such a prolific author. He's written, I think, 15 books. He has a new one coming out this month. It's called Living Between Worlds, and he's going to be on the podcast later in the month. Um, he was... I forgot what I was saying. This is why I need notes because I lose my train of thought. Um, we're talking about the psyche. Yeah, and individuation. Individuating and... The pain of not individuating. The or... pain of... Yeah. So n not every... Oh, he was talking about our task is to live our own lives instead of somebody else's. And somebody had asked him, you know, what does that mean? Well if we can go through life, our entire life and our entire adulthood, living by somebody else's dictates, what somebody else wants us to do, whether that be family or parent, spouse, friends, church, their rules, their expectations, instead of what does my soul want? What, where, where am I being directed to go? Am I living it? Am I following it? Am I listening to it? And I, I don't know that that many people are. I mean, society certainly doesn't encourage that. So how would we know how to do that? Um, so that's what analysis did for me is it taught me all of that because I certainly wasn't taught that by my family or the church I attended as a child or my friends. So I had to kind of learn from the beginning about these concepts about how, for instance, one of the things Hollis talks about a lot is anxiety it goes with the human condition. It doesn't, we, he talks about depathologizing our pathology. And maybe that's a little bit about what you were talking about that you heard. Exactly. I think that yeah. was it. Yeah. You're yeah, talking about, you, it was a show you're talking about pills and all that. And you're like, right. no, no, have a dialogue with your psyche. And I started to, and it was amazing. Wow. That's so good to hear because that is one of the most, I think, sensitive points in all of this. And I have some friends who do take psychotropic medication. I took so psychotropic medication. I 
I've dabbled in lots of different things and maybe that's why I feel so firm in my stance today because I tried so many different things. I saw different kinds of therapists and I experimented with the medications they all wanted to put me on because that's kind of the the medical model in our society is the quick fix. If you have a symptom, you go to a doctor who helps you get rid of that symptom. Doesn't ask, well, let's talk about why did this symptom show up in your life? And why did it show up now? And what's it trying to tell us? That takes time. That takes patience. And yeah, it takes money to go back every week and pay your analyst every week. So uh, the treatment plans that I think clinical psychologists use today, they are only for a certain number of sessions. Uh, I don't know. It's been a really long time since I was involved in anything like that. Um, But like Jungian analysts, typically they don't take insurance. So this is all out of pocket um, but if you go to a psychologist and they put a treatment plan together for you, it's because of the, that's what the insurance company says, uh, needs to be done to treat whatever they diagnose you. And, th- and so that's another thing about Jungian analysts and working analytically is it's not You're not being diagnosed and you're not being medicated because they don't pathologize your symptoms. And a lot of, I think, what we commonly struggle with today psychologically are, I've gotten criticized for saying this, but I don't care. It's part of being human, you know, being depressed, not being happy all the time, struggling with things, suffering, that's part of the human condition. But no, we live in this extroverted, have a nice day society that thinks that we're supposed to be happy. And if we're not, something's wrong. So what do you do about it? Well, there's a pill for everything. And I bought into that for a while and it didn't help. Sometimes something helps in the short term, makes you feel better for a while, maybe six months, but then whatever it was that was gnawing at you, it didn't go away. We don't get rid of stuff unless we deal with it. So, and and some say that it just goes underground and it gets bigger and it gets stronger. And eventually you're going to have to deal with it. If not psychologically, it can show up in your body as an illness. I believe that's what physical illnesses are, that they start way outside of the body and eventually show up in the body. I think that's the last place they go. So... Uh, yeah, I, where were we going? Where, where was I going with that? Oh, the idea that, uh, yeah, there's nothing wrong with us or that we have to, I still with the, the, the dialogue of the psyche. And I agree. It's been, uh, for me, it's been eight years since I was on meds, but it's only been 
the last few years that I really started applying, really applying Jungian ideas, like, again, the, the dialogue with what's going on within me, uh, the dream journal, the active imagination, the discussions, all that. And like you mm -hmm. said, it's, uh, there is no quick fix, but, uh, it, uh, the changes are amazing. It's, uh, yeah, you, I feel more like myself every day, closer to, uh, as you said, my authentic mm -hmm. self, wherever that's supposed to lead to. So, and it's a great feeling. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And another thing that I was kind of shocked into a little bit uh, in analysis is about this concept of growing up. Um, as an adult, I need to, yeah, take responsibility for myself, but um, be accountable for myself and not be looking to someone else to fix it or to blame it on. And that was something that I needed to learn how to do because I think that uh, I agree with Dr. Hollis that we live in an infantilizing culture where we uh, are kind of have this adolescent mentality. And he was talking about how, uh, some other some other cultures see us see America as an adolescent culture. So that that was another thing that was uh, new to me because you know we're, we get so used to hearing the people around us how they talk, and if you watch TV or movies or or any kind of media there's kind of this, this is the way you do things. This is the way you think. This is the, like we, my mom and I used to watch these TV shows and eventually I started realizing what are these, these people are telling us what to buy, what to wear, exactly. how to look, <laughs> how, how this is the hairstyle. Everybody's wearing it long now and it's kind of layered on the side and bangs are in. And then now you're doing the cat eye eyeliner are you kidding me yeah. so that we can all look alike i don't want to look alike i don't want to look alike i want to look like me but then there are consequences to that you know if you don't fit in you stand out and then there are repercussions but depends on who you hang out with right exactly <laughs> one of the tropes or beliefs out there laura mm -hmm. is that Jungian therapy is just for the privilege what do oh. you say to this and again i, I know you've addressed this <laughs> in your podcast that's why i I'm think it's it. a convenient excuse yeah. <laughs> i know i, I would I never do. make an excuse not to get better i've never done that no no <laughs> it's you know we all have we, we all, all have, have. So we all procrastinate it, it it was a long road and it takes as long as it takes. Um, so let's break that down so that it's only for the privileged few. Well, some say it is a privilege and I uh, don't. I don't because if we really break down, so say that you're struggling and you would like to see a Jungian, there are so many options available. For example, here in the Chicago area, in Evanston, which now is not in downtown Chicago, Evanston is 12 miles north of downtown Chicago, there is the C.G. Jung Center, 
that has a clinic with a that ha, that offers a sliding scale fee. So whatever you can afford to pay, you can negotiate that with your whoever you're seeing there. They're not just Jungian analysts; they're also Jungian therapists, and that's a possibility. It's not the only one of its kind. There are other clinics with sliding scale fees. I don't want to name names uh, because I don't know if I have permission to talk about it, but analysts that I know have told me that they have never, ever turned anyone away over money. I've actually done an episode about money with Jungian analyst Jan Bauer. She's in Montreal now where she practices, but we really get into the subject of money in that episode. Um, So, Yes, it can be expensive if you pay their full fee. They're not covered by insurance. But things can be worked out. You don't have to go every week or you can, I don't know. I don't know how they work things out, but they'll work something out with you uh, if this is important to you. That's the other point is how important is this to you? Look at where your money is going. And some people, I think, don't realize it. Uh, I have a friend who has a boat and is married and has children and has pets and has a house. And so there's there are all the things that go along with that. You're putting your, oh gosh, this is such a touchy subject. But I mean, for, for example, with myself, I made decisions early on in my life. I chose not to have children. I don't have a house. I live in a small condo. And there. I guess I'm saying that because I'm saying it depends on what your priorities are. So where are you going to put your money? Um, I have a friend that rides horses. That's an expense. So do you want to do that? Or do you want to invest in yourself to deal with your stuff. I know that that sounds kind of harsh, but that that belief that it's just for the privileged few is just to me another excuse not to do it. And you don't have to see a Jungian analyst, you can see any kind of therapist. It, that just happens to be my particular um my preference my preference to see a Jungian and it doesn't have to be. So whatever you can afford. Now, crisis management is a different story. If you go to um, a therapist and say that you have these symptoms and they have to put you on a treatment plan and your insurance will only cover six sessions or something like that, that's not what this is. Jungian analysis is a long-term deal because things in the psyche that are deep rooted take time. They take time to get to and they take time to shift and you have to kind of sit with it until it does. And it's, it's about, so Usually we're struggling with something. There's the emergence of a polarity, a conflict, and 
it's about sitting with it and enduring it and waiting for it to resolve. And then what comes out of that is more of the real you. And that's the individuation process. But it takes time and commitment and it's not for everybody. But if you're interested and if you hear the call, then you kind of, it's kind of not possible to not do it. I would agree with you 100%. Money is just energy and where you yeah. want to put your energy, yeah, it's a choice. Yeah. Well said. Very, very well said. So um, and, and I just want to mention another thing that I was reminded of when I was listening to Gary Sparks. He said that in doing this inner work, because another criticism is that it's it's being self-absorbed. <laughs> My God, the more <laughs> the more I work on myself, the less I'm going to dump my stuff on you, other people. Oh, good world. point. Yes, of course. So, but he brought up a good point that in doing this inner work, we acquire a debt, and we have we have the that that debt is that we must pay it back. You have to do something with what you learned about yourself through this inner journey, doing this inner work. And that is kind of at toward the end of the process of individuation. I did an episode with Delden Ann McNeely. Delden Ann McNeely, yeah. An older woman in Louisiana, and she wrote a book about individuation, and she talks about in different stages. And toward the end there, it's about giving back. And so for me, I think that that is one of the reasons why I started the podcast is because I felt that I did have to give something back. Because he said that when when we're doing this inner work where we retreat from society a bit because it does take a lot of our attention away from other things when we are <clears throat> devoting time to writing down our dreams, paying attention to what's going on inside of us, writing things down, processing things. It's, it's us, we're taking time away from other things and from other people. And it does affect our relationships when we're doing this kind of work on ourselves. It does affect our relationships. And if people are afraid of it hurting some relationships, well, maybe those relationships aren't in your best interest if they can't withstand this. And only the ones that are survive. And I think that's a good thing. So, uh, yeah, he, he said inner work is a luxury that we can't afford not to have. Exactly. And, um, why did you start speaking of Jung? I know the answer, but, uh, for the audience. Why did I start speaking of Jung? Well, I love podcasts and I was telling you before we started that, Aeon Byte was one of the podcasts that I listened to uh, oh, early on cool. when I Thanks. first started listening yeah, to podcasts because I love having something on while I'm doing tasks with my hands, like when I'm in the kitchen 
or when I take these long showers or when I'm working out, I I would love to be hearing people talk. I love interviews. I've always loved interviews. When I was little, I would watch um, Merv Griffin and whenever there was a Barbara Walter special on, I loved seeing people, hearing people talk about themselves, their lives, their work. So I've listened to podcasts since podcasts started and I was seeing my analyst. Remember when I said I I uh, moved away and I was driving two hours each right, way yeah. to see her? Well, then I moved to Chicago because that was when I was living in Ohio. She's in Cleveland. I used to live in Cleveland. I saw her in person then. And then I moved to Columbus. I had to drive two hours each way to see her. And, and I just want to say something about that because I've encouraged other people to do that. Uh, I get asked a lot for recommendations uh, for analysts. People listen to the podcast or they read a book that I've tweeted about and they become very interested in Jungian analysis and they live someplace where there aren't any analysts in the area. And now now they do uh, a lot of analysts work on Skype or Zoom, but back when I back then, let's just say, uh, they weren't. That didn't exist. So I just want to make a case for uh, me driving two hours each way once a week was very therapeutic in itself. The drive was therapeutic. I would be alone in the car and I would think about the work that we were doing. And I'd go there and have my session and then I'd get back in the car. And so it gave me time to process. I didn't just jump right back into my life uh, before or after the session. So if there is an analyst that doesn't live near you, you know, you're not limited to just who's in your area. You can drive or uh, now you can do, I, I don't, I don't know about the Skype and the Zoom thing. I, I like being in person because where I was going with this was that when I left Columbus, Ohio and moved to Chicago, I could no longer do that. It's a five hour drive. I wasn't going to do that. And so we started having phone sessions. Again, this was before Skype and Zoom. And that was difficult because she couldn't see me. I couldn't see her. Um, but I didn't want to end that relationship because it was a very important relationship. The That's another aspect of Jungian analysis is the relationship between the analyst and the analysand. That's a very important part of it, the transference, the counter-transference. And so I didn't want to terminate that relationship until I was ready. And so we had our hour once a week on the phone. And as I had mentioned before, we started to talk more and more about Jung and these concepts and what they meant. And I would take notes. So toward the end there, I had the idea that this would make a great podcast because my analyst, now she's not been a guest of mine. She hasn't wanted to. Uh, a lot of analysts don't want to. A lot of analysts don't want to speak publicly. And there are many reasons for that. But 
and I'm sure they all have their own personal reasons. So she's not been a guest yet, but hopefully she will be in the future because she explains Jung in my mind better than anybody. And I desperately want her on the podcast because and especially when things are happening in the world, because we would always talk about things like that. And the the way that she put things and explained things, she's so natural at it. And um, she just, she speaks unlike anybody else. And I think that through the, it's going to be five years here that I've been doing this podcast this summer, it'll, it'll be five years. In the five years, I I think that I'm constantly looking for someone to talk like she talks. You know what I mean? Like I'm, I'm, I'm searching for that, that same essence. And so hopefully soon she'll be ready and, and she'll come on and talk. But, um, so my case was for doing that, going that extra mile to to have that analytic hour with somebody that is right for you. And um, I forgot where else I was going with that. Um, Yeah. That led you to the podcast. Led me to, oh, led me to the podcast. Yeah, because I got that idea to, I was on the phone with her and I thought this is, this would be great if, we were recording this and of course I couldn't do that, but it it gave me that idea. And so I started to put a list together of people that I would love to, to interview for the podcast. And so it, it came about uh, the timing of it. Well, I was actually in the beginning, I was partnered up with inner city books. They publish Oh, they did. They're, I think they're getting back. Well, that's a whole other story that I'm going to be covering on the fifth anniversary special this summer with them. Um, They only publish books written by Jungian analysts, and they're the only publishing company to do that. Uh, The founder, Daryl Sharp, who I interviewed in the very first episode of Speaking of Jung, he passed away last year. Um, it was, he was ill and um, I think he was 80, 81 years old. And I got to do two episodes with him, uh, but I had sort of partnered up with them in the beginning to interview their authors because, as I said, they were all Jungian analysts. And then it, the publishing company had has been around since I think 1980, and a lot of their authors were no longer with us um, or not practicing anymore. It was it was just hard to get guests when I was limiting myself to just their authors. So I expanded out um, to pretty much interview people that. I felt a connection with or that I knew personally because a lot of the people I've interviewed, I've uh, attended lectures that they've given. I like to do interviews in person, which I'm not doing anymore for obvious reasons, but I would travel to interview people in person. So 
I started the podcast because there wasn't really anything like it out there. There are podcasts that interview psychologists, psychiatrists, but not just Jungian analysts. And that's why I, I tried to stick to my guns and not bring in others. I wanted it to be unique. Um, I have interviewed a couple people that are not analysts for various reasons. Um, I, but I do want to stick to that just Jungian analysts and I've been criticized for that. And, um, I also get a lot of recommendations and that's kind of not how it works for me. It has to be something that comes from within me an interest that comes from within me. And as you know, Miguel, these shows, they, they're a lot of work and it's, it's it's time and it's money. And it has to be something that, that I'm feeling, you know, that I'm interested in. Otherwise, why do it? And I'm not going to do a good job if it's something that I'm not that interested in. And just because somebody's a Jungian analyst doesn't mean that I'm automatically interested in their work and they're not all the same. And what I'm, I've come to see is that there are differences within the community and there have been splits in institutes and in training programs. And that, again, that's to be expected. It's natural. Not everybody's going to agree. And not everybody sees Jung the same way. Not everybody interprets his work the same way. Some are more classically oriented. Some consider themselves post-Jungians. So not everybody is kind of in my wheelhouse. And I uh, started off I I thought I was going to be doing one episode a week, but I just couldn't. And so I started doing one episode a month and I was putting a lot of work into each episode. And now that we are, we've been in lockdown since March, I've not gone out much. I've gone out twice since the lockdown. I do go out for walks and jogs, um, but I'm not traveling and I'm not going to the gym every day and I'm not going to restaurants and all of that's still closed here in Chicago. So I've been doing one episode a week and I started doing something else. I'm doing what I'm calling the quarantine series where every other week I interview just some interesting person that I know. So I've had on astronomers an astrologer uh, yesterday interviewed a photographer that I've known for 20 years and I've got, um, I have Starfire Tour coming up who discovered the core matrix and time shifts and I've got Kelly Carlin coming up, George Carlin's daughter. So I'm taking this time, this op- opportunity to do a little bit of interviews with some people where I can kind of open up more and be more casual and do a little bit more talking because typically uh, I'd like the analysts to do the, to do all the talking and not interject too much. So the quarantine series is, has given me a chance to kind of share some of my experiences, my travel experiences, and, and they're not about Jung. 
those episodes. So uh, I've had some some people not happy about that, but I'm just doing them every other week. Yes, I have enjoyed them. Yeah, you had Brian Turnoff and oh, Brian, I didn't know yeah. you're you're friends with Robert Sullivan, the Freemason author, lawyer. Yeah. Oh wow, love Robert. Had him I on about him five too. times. Vance likes him too, don't you? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. He's on Facebook. I see his stuff all the time. Yeah, small world. <laughs> he's great. He's great. Yeah. No, I love this community. I was. Um, this is my first love. This. This I'm not lumping everybody in, but this community of alter what would you call it alternative? And that's even even that word. I mean, there's something wrong with all of these terms. <laughs> yeah, I don't have alternative media, alternative. Uh, I don't know non mainstream, yeah. non mainstream thought. Uh, Esoteric, so, I sometimes yes. call it. Yes. <laughs> exactly. It's my first love, really. And it's where I feel the most at home. So I listened to, I started I, when I was talking about how I started listening to podcasts when they started. I think the first podcast I ever heard was Coast to Coast AM when they started recording their, because they're on live and on the East Coast, I think they come on at midnight and they'd run for five hours on terrestrial radio. They started making the shows available on their website uh, for subscribers. And I think that was the first podcast I'd ever listened to. And then when Whitley Strieber took over Dreamland, he made that into a podcast. And then right. it went from there. I had all these podcasts bookmarked. And um, when they'd have a guest on that was somebody that I was interested in, I would download it and, and put it on my iPod. I still do that. I still put shows on my iPod and then put my iPod in an old Bose sound dock so that I could carry it around the house so that I could hear it in whatever room I'm in. So that's what works for me. So I wanted my podcast to be downloadable and available to everybody. And uh, I set up the website so that each episode has its own page with information about the guest and their photo and links to their website and their books and and uh, everything that they mention that is linkable, I put in the show notes, and um, it seems to work. And, yeah. I know. It's awesome. And, yeah, the quality of your guests, it's uh, an excellent show. I listen to it every week. Audience, I advise you to check it out. And something that I've, I was going to bring up later, but mm -hmm. it's interesting because – I think this is a very important topic, especially from a Jungian perspective, especially in 2020. You keep talking about you get criticized. And I know exactly how it is when you're doing podcasting. Uh, you know, I'll get what's an example. You had Dennis Merritt and he was God, he was excellent. His ideas on the age of Hermes and all that, mm -hmm. it sort of fit my ideas. And I think, man, this guy nails it. He's I loved the whole interview. And he had some pointed political attitudes. He did. And I, I don't, I'm the same way. You, I don't care what your politics are. Mm -hmm. I don't care if you share or you don't share. The floor's yours. 
as long as I, you know, we get the Gnostic stuff and all that. And I think you feel the same way, but you got attacked pretty, pretty hard on social media. Yeah. And it seems to happen a lot. Sometimes I think, and I, I don't want to think, well, it's because, do they do it because she's a woman? Cause I get attacked, but once I hit back, they usually stop or they, at least they, they, they could come back later on to hit me. But it's almost <laughs> like, uh, and, and I see you uh, and you're very patient, but I also see you start talking about today's politics and everything. You're telling, they're just basically shadow projecting. I think they're trying to control what's, what is, uh, psychologists say if people can't control their emotions, they're going to try to control your behavior. Mm. And I see that a lot with people with the whole cancel culture and a control mm -hmm. and everybody's very sensitive. And I know you're, yeah. you're, you're basically saying on your podcast and your Twitter, you said, look, of all times in history, this is a time where we need to look inward, stop projecting and controlling others and not letting people express themselves or have a dialogue. Just look inward. And I, I agree with you a hundred percent with this, Laura. But people don't want to hear that. And that's okay. Yeah, I didn't want to hear it when I was right. into drugs and completely disconnected from my encounter. I didn't want right. to hear it. I wanted people to feel like I felt and think like I yeah. did. <laughs> yeah. No, thanks for saying that. That's a good reminder because I tend to forget about that and kind of shove this in people's faces, which I don't want to do. And I don't want to, I'm not out to convert anybody, but if somebody comes at me, then I'm pretty much going to defend myself and put them in their place. And then they usually disappear, block me and disappear and go on to somebody that they can, they can have their way with. Uh, it, I don't enjoy it. It feels bad. I don't enjoy heated debates. I'm not interested in having a debate. And that's kind of my problem with social media is I love social media. I love to put my information out there and I love to see other people's that I'm interested in information, but I am not going to get into it with them. I'm not interested in having a debate about it. If somebody has a question, I, that's understandable, but I, I don't have time or interest for a back and forth when it's the middle of the workday and I'm sharing some content on social media and I'm not interested in having a discussion about it. I say that I created the podcast and that's where I will discuss things. I can't just sit there and get into it with a stranger because it's another thing. I don't know who I'm dealing with unless I know you. So with Facebook, and I said this again on Facebook, and I feel kind of like I don't, I don't like the way it looks or sounds when I do this. I say that I only accept friend requests from people I actually know, but I've opened it to followers because I know people are, they're not interested in me. I, why would they be? They're interested in the podcast. And I use Facebook and Twitter and Instagram to promote the podcast and say, you know, who my guest was and what the episode is about. And sometimes I do post things about myself um, because this is not a machine doing this podcast. It's not a 
a corporation, it's an individual, it's my project, my personal project. So when, when I, and I don't want to talk about politics, I kind of learned that when I think it was in early 2016. So Trump was elected in 16 or was he inaugurated in 16 no he was elected november 16 yeah that's also when the cubs won the championship okay. kind of a, a strange year and yeah inaugurated in january 17. thank you okay so in early 2016 tom lavin who is a chicago institution he is a Jungian analyst here in uh i think he's in winnetka uh, his private practice, but he's taught at the Jung Institute and at the Jung Center in Evanston for, he's been here for decades. And so he gave a talk at the Jung Center about Trump and about Donald Trump and called the, the, um, the Trump phenomena. And I attended that talk. Gosh, it was so long ago. Now I can barely remember it. And then I asked him if he would kind of replicate it on the podcast. And he did. I, I had to talk him into it. And people, so people in the audience at the lecture at the Jung Center in Evanston were not getting what he was saying. And I s sat there and I was stunned because he's, was trying to make the point this is not what this this whole uproar about trump is not about trump it's about us exactly and i couldn't believe that jungians i don't know jungians i should be calling everybody in the audience a jungian <laughs> they're at the jung center yeah. paying to hear a jungian analyst speak it wasn't like this people were walking in off the street do you know what i mean they made a, a conscious decision to attend this specific lecture. So he did the, he did the episode and he talked for so long. It, the whole thing isn't even there. I had to take out like a half an hour of it. It was just too long. It was too big. And um, I thought it was a great episode and I didn't I'd get criticism of that. But after that, what I realized was that what he was saying, what Dr. Lavin was saying about Donald Trump was not well received. People did not want to hear that. They wanted to throw stones, uh, bash Trump, and I made the decision to stay neutral. I'm not taking either side, but a lot of people I know are. And I just can't, I, I could, I choose not to engage with that. I don't want to go there. I don't want to get caught up in that. So Chiron Publications, who I've been working with a lot lately, interviewing their authors, they scrambled and released a book called A Clear and Present Danger, Narcissism in the Era of Donald Trump. And each chapter was written by a different Jungian analyst. Dr. Lavin did take that presentation 
that he gave that day at, at the Jung Center and then kind of replicated on the podcast and turned it into a chapter and it's in that book. Um, they wanted me to promote it and I th- thought that I'd be taking a stand if I did that because I have friends who are Trump supporters. I have friends who know Donald Trump and support him. I have friends that have seriously told me that they're seriously considering moving to another country because they don't want to live in a country where he's the president. So I feel kind of caught in the middle as far as who I'm surrounded by and what their stance is on this. And I don't talk about it. I don't talk about what I think or how I feel. It's too hot of a topic. And in order for me to do this podcast and do it well, I don't want to take a side. I don't, and I don't, I don't know. I don't really, I don't want to say anything. Ah, it's so hard. Um, (laughs) But I mean, for example, Dennis Merritt, mm -hmm. I enjoyed it because obviously his stance on Trump is very, very negative. At yeah. the same time, you could still see Trump from a union aspect. He's the collective yeah. unconscious of America projecting the trickster or the shadow. He is our shadow, but he's also the trickster, the image of the trickster archetype. He's the image of Hermes in this age of Hermes. So he could still put it on some very fascinating ideas. And unfortunately, in this era, like your friends or some friends the, of uh, Friends of Vance and I, they have to reduce the world to good and bad guys. Right. And, and what is that? What would you call that when you do that? Is that splitting. part of shadow shadow projection? Oh, it's different splitting. I would say it was splitting that mm. that they're bad and we're not. That we're you know the, this this good and evil thing. That no no right. we all are both we all have it all so with the shadow is the things about us that we can't see don't see don't want to see and because of that we see it in other people because we're not owning it in ourselves so if we see things in donald trump we don't know Donald Trump. If we see things in him and hate him for it, we need to say, wait a second, how am I like that? Exactly. So now somebody came at me when it was about somebody who was actually a murderer and she got so upset and she said, well, I'm not a murderer. Okay. You're, you're taking it literally. So, this person is more than just a murderer. What is a murderer to you? So we could break it down and look at what's underneath it instead of staying up on the surface and just looking at it superficially. It's more complicated than that. So Jungian psychology is also called depth psychology because we go vertical. You know, so most of our lives are spent up on the surface, but There's also an unconscious, and we haven't talked about the unconscious, but that is part of the psyche. The psyche is consciousness and the unconscious. We're not just all ego. We're not just all conscious. Most of us, (laughs) most of it, 
is unconscious. And what's unconscious is it's there. We're just not aware of it. So um, it gets projected. What we're not conscious of gets projected. And projection isn't wrong or bad. It's natural. But when it starts to cause problems for us, then it's time for us to pull back and pull those projections back. And that is, again, not an easy thing to do, not a popular thing to do. And most people don't want to do it. It's easier to blame somebody else, make them carry it for us. That's social media today. And I think it's, it's, it's terrible. And it's, uh, it's, I get the desire. I want to be completely self-righteous and tell my truth on social media. But then I stop and I realize, no, I need to look at what's going on inside of me because that's where, that's where it's really happening, not somewhere else. And, uh, and I think it's brilliant. Um, I think it was, uh, your guest, uh, Kenneth James had a very simple, definition of the shadow the shadow is everything i do not wish to be and mm. i know it's one of your pet peeves because people think the shadow is just evil all my dark right. sexual and murder desires you know but yes. it's it's just things i haven't faced and don't want to or every time i say i'm not like that i'm not that's not me uh, yeah it is <laughs> it is it might not be a big part of you but it is part of you because it's what we're human. We have it all. And if I say, well, yeah, I'm like that too. When somebody the other day was talking about, well, he's such a hypocrite, you know, that's so hypocritical. And I thought I couldn't say it, but I thought, well, you're hypocritical too at times. So am I. We, we actually all are. Why is that bothering you? That's the big question. You know, wh why are you seeing that in him and why is it bothering you so much? So that's what we need to pay attention to is when we get, we call it when we get triggered and that, that word was being used way before it became kind of the word to use, um, uh, <laughs> it, yeah. that my, my analyst used to use that word, that something is, we'd use the word, con uh, triggered, but really what was going on is that something's getting constellated. So that's actually a pretty good thing, a, a positive sign, because it's telling us something. Oh, okay, there's something here for me to look at and work on. Why did I get so emotional? Why did I have such a huge reaction to that? Why did I get triggered? What's really going on there? But, you know, who wants to do that? So unless you're in analysis, unless you're uh, up on this, is anybody really doing that? So it's that's another thing is that it. the more and more I got into Jung and this work, and, and what I was saying in the beginning about the difference is when we're doing the work on ourselves in analysis, that is a lot different than when I am reading Jung and then posting some quotes on Twitter and um, people are reading them and they're liking the tweets or retweeting it or making just short comments saying guilty as charged. <laughs> no, that's great. I, I love quotes, but and you you have done a lot of work on yourself. You were just talking about the 
the work you've done and that you were a certain way and now you're someplace else with it all, right? And But there are some people that, that just read and, yeah, I use the word just because we can read about Jung and read about these concepts and understand it intellectually, but are we experiencing Jung? Are we having an experience of the collective unconscious? Are we work working with our dreams? Are we writing down our dreams? Are we interpreting our dreams, analyzing them? Are we working with somebody else who can see the things in us that we can't see because we need other people because we have blind spots and we can't see ourselves? And that's what the analyst is there for. The analyst isn't giving advice or telling us what to do. They're they're sitting across from us as kind of on the same level, having a dialogue about what's going on. And and that is so important. So understanding Jung intellectually and and all this these academics, I just I I can't relate to that because I'm not. I'm not a young scholar and I've never wanted to be a therapist. I've had people many times ask me if I was an analyst or if I wanted to be one or why didn't I be, become one? And I've actually had analysts after we get done recording ask me, you know, are you going to enter a training program. And I'm not interested in being an analyst. I've never wanted to be a therapist. I've just always been interested in this dynamic. And I'm satisfied with what I do and not doing any more because I do have other interests and I enjoy other things. And I could not imagine having to kind of carry the the load of what eight people a day eight nine people a day i th- i heard hollis say that he sees eight patients a day wow there's no way and and to remember what everybody's got no <laughs> not me that's not for me see that's another thing is i know myself that's not who i am or what i came here to do and i think that something else that comes out of analysis is we learn who we are. And again, I think that that's, that's my job is to understand myself and know myself and be myself instead of trying to be somebody else. And I know that that's not right for me. It doesn't matter if some famous analyst suggested that I become an analyst. No, that's not my path. And I know that. I know that about myself. Very nice and well said. And uh, yeah, this is a lot of fun. Vince, do you have any questions or comments for Laura? Yeah, Laura, when you're talking about becoming yourself and so forth, it brings to mind the idea of the collective unconscious and how if we're not paying attention or looking, we can get sucked in and start kind of following the forces of, you know, archetypical influences. And I was wondering if, uh, you know, I, th- I kind of think in those terms and when I look at what's going on in the world 
And do you see, from a Jungian standpoint, a kind of polarity between individuals trying to be individuals and people trying to collect into groups and and be a collective? And the, the, the I see a big fight between the idea of individuals and the collective uh, in in the world, and that explains almost everything that I see about politics. What do you say about that? Yeah, Jung had a lot to say about groups, and it wasn't very positive uh, because we lose our individuality, obviously, when we're part of a group, yeah. and and that things get, uh, I don't remember the word he used, but they kind of sink to the level of the lowest common denominator. Gosh, that sounds awfully harsh, doesn't it? Uh, but but co- the collective uh, psyche there of a group is uh, is kind of scary and very powerful. And you know what? I I don't know if you're aware, but I was um, working with uh, a team in the NFL and still kind of loosely am. And I've been to a lot of NFL football games. And the the more and more I learned about Jung and groups, and I would feel very, how do I say this uh, diplomatically, when I'm in a stadium and I'm one of 68,000 people, that it's a scary feeling because, you know, have you ever been part of an angry mob? Uh, it's it it, you get you can get swept away or sucked in to that and then you are no longer you've kind of abandoned your own values and become part of this Matt, it's, it's scary. I, and I don't yeah, it's like, like a it. group being right. It's like yeah. something it's yeah. like you're, you're not in control anymore. It's something else. Yeah. Some other ideas. An egregore. And, yeah. And, and, and Jung had a lot to say about that. And when he was talking about what happened uh, in Germany during the war uh, with the Nazis, that, that the, this is about the collective shadow. And you know what? I was just looking through this because my next guest is Donald Calshed, who is kind of well known for his work on trauma and early childhood trauma, which is typically not a thing that is uh, discussed in the Jungian community. He's kind of a pioneer in that aspect, but he didn't want to talk about that. And I've been I actually met him and I've been trying to get him on the podcast for many years and he's very busy man. And, um, he kind of, he lives in New Mexico now and I used to go to New Mexico every Christmas and I tried to get him to record with me when I was there. Uh, every time I'd go there, I'd reach out to him. But anyway, so he has a chapter in a new book that's coming out this month called, don't have it in front of me. Oh gosh. Um, but it's about this. It's about the collective shadow and cultural complexes. That's what it's about. So Ooh. we haven't talked about complexes, but we probably don't have time. Um, oh, we shouldn't. Cause I, I mean, you mentioned, uh, the egregore. I don't know if you've worked, mentioned the work of Mark Stavish and Anthony Peake. They thought, these thought forms that become semi-independent or quasi-independent, like, again, the German people, uh, 
mobs, uh, religious cults, and somebody told me that's very close to Jung's idea of a complex. And I know you said oh. the ego is a complex, but it's sort of this th I, all this energy thrown together. And I know you said there's an archetypal core to a complex. Yes. But it still seems like an egregore in a way. And I'm like, wow, our egos are egregores. That, you know, that that uh, distinction about the ego being a complex, I never quite understood that. And I, I kind of try to forget that they say that. So I'm just looking now. Um, Donald Kalshed did not write this book. The book is was edited by Thomas Singer, and it is a compilation of uh, essays written by, I don't know if they're all Jungian analysts, but it's coming out this month. It's called Cultural Complexes and the Soul of America, and the subtitle is Myth, Psyche, and Politics. And Kalshed's... Wow. Sounds uh, like a great book. Ooh. Yeah, and Kalshed's... Uh, his chapter is called Wrestling with Our Angels, Inner and Outer Democracy in America Under the Shadow of Donald Trump. And I said I wasn't going to be talking about politics on Speaking of Jung anymore, but this is Donald Kalshed, and if there's anybody to make an exception for, it's him. He uh, can talk about whatever he wants. If he wanted to read the phone book, that would be fine with me. But <laughs> I'm I'm certainly not going to add anything. He can, like with Dennis Merritt, um, and thank you for listening to that episode. He actually contacted me and asked if we could do, this is when the COVID-19 started. Right. He said that he had some things to say about it, and he asked if we could do an episode, and I said, sure. And I don't know if you, if you noticed, but like the last half hour of that episode, I don't say anything because he just went off. And I was trying to, in the first maybe 90 minutes, I was trying to interject here and there, and he wasn't having it. So I just kind of sat back and let him go. And that's perfectly fine with me. I actually met him last summer. I went to um, Milwaukee. That's where he lives. And we recorded in person. And uh, we talked about the I Ching. He is a Qing scholar. He calls it the Jing. Um, he's he's worked with it more than anybody that I've ever known. And he's an eco-psychologist and really interesting guy. But I had no idea he was going to go off like that. No idea, no warning at all. <laughs> Maybe he had, to, he had to get stuff off of his chest, COVID, tr Trump. I mean, tense time, but... He had a lot of great insights. He just yeah. was angry about a few things. Oh, well, well <laughs> these people to me are brilliant. Um, yes, I'm sure I pr I'm projecting a lot onto them, but Jungian analysts are the amount of training that it takes to become a Jungian analyst and the amount of personal analysis that one has to undergo in order to become a Jungian analyst. And, and then he's been one for decades. So, he could say whatever he wants as far as I'm concerned and I don't have to agree with it. And it doesn't matter if I don't agree with somebody, this is going back to what we were talking about uh, social media before. I don't have to tell them that I don't agree with them. I could just let them speak, let them have their, let them voice their opinions or their thoughts 
and I don't have to respond or react. And I kind of like it when I feel passionately about something. I don't want to hear how you disagree with me unless it's a scheduled debate. Uh, so there's room for lots of different opinions. There's room for everybody. There's room for all of it. And I don't understand on social media, again, if it's somebody that I know and respect and care about and they want to um, understand why I have a different point of view, then they can reach out to me privately and we could have a discussion about it. But political, I mean, public uh, fighting like that, I, I don't get it. I don't understand. And I don't understand why people that I don't know scroll through my timeline and tell me all the places where they think I'm wrong. You know, it's I don't a power care. trip. It, it is really a power trip. You know, so <laughs> I want to say, what's it to you what I think? What's it to you what I believe? Because you have to believe like them. Yeah, Like Vance was saying, you have to believe in the collective. Because if not, then you're forced to look at yourself, right? Yeah. If everybody thinks the same thing and none of us are free, life is easy. But if I have to make up my own ideas because other ideas are challenging me, that's a lot of work. Mm -hmm. Again, I used to be that, so I know I've I've been through I've been through a lot. And uh, but uh, Laura, I really want to talk about the complex because uh, uh, on this show we've had many youngins, and you've done your own show on on youngin terms. But uh, the complex is really fascinating. Could you share with the audience what the complex is? A complex, I, I'm not going to give you the textbook definition. I'm going to give you my experience of what a complex is, okay? Because, again, I'm not, because I'm not an analyst, I'm not a Jung scholar, I'm not a teacher, I've experienced Jung through my 17 years of being in analysis. So that's where I'm coming from. I could just talk about my experience. So when I was in analysis, I had never heard of that term used that way. So we've heard of the kind of a common use term, an inferiority complex. We, we all, we've all heard that and we know what that means, but that right. is not exactly what Jung meant. And it is one of Jung's terms because Jung's psychology is technically called analytical psychology. And that was to distinguish it from Freud. But it was originally called complex psychology. And then there was some kind of, I think it was about the, you know, Jung spoke German and he wrote in German and eventually he spoke English and wrote, actually wrote in English as well. But I think the, um, what do I want to say, um, the translation of the word didn't work well. So it was renamed analytical psychology. So the complex is very central to his, his work, his psychology, his, his theories. And it is when I know that I'm in a complex, when my reaction is not proportionate to the occasion. When I am having a big reaction to something, that is a sign that I'm in a complex. It has taken years for me to get a handle on this. 
Um, and when we are in a complex, we don't know we're in a complex. And that is one of the signs that we are in a complex is that we don't think we are. And we think we're right. So these people on Facebook, these self-righteous people, they're clearly in a complex, but that's not for me to tell them. So when somebody like say my partner is in a complex and I point that out, they don't want to know that you got to wait. You got to wait till they're out (laughs) of the complex. Then you can talk about it with them because when you're in a complex, you can't hear you can't hear. So it's useless. Don't try reasoning with somebody when they're in a complex. You have to wait until they're out of it. And, and they're almost like alien, like a different personality. I, yes. mean, like, I know when it I'm helps. angry, if I'm angry driving and I'm screaming, my wife will just be like, I'm going to wait till this person disappears. This mm-hmm. crazy man Smart. by the wheel. <laughs> Very smart because if she would turn to you and say, what the hell is wrong with you? Why are you yelling like that? You'll just get angrier, right? Uh, Yeah, it's like I get more power. Defend yourself. Yeah, so you can't reason with somebody when they're in a complex. But they're called splinter personalities. And Hollis, I remember this too. This is one of the the things that, the, the ways that he hooked me. The first time I saw him, it was in 2001, it was in Columbus, Ohio, and he was up on a stage. It was a huge crowd. And he said, when we're in a complex, we are transiently psychotic. And I thought that made so much sense to me. Because how many times have we done something or more likely said something and then afterward, later, when we think back on it? we cringe or we think what came over me yeah and then you go well it won't happen again and bang Mm -hmm. just like that and you're like Mm -hmm. what is going on so hollis says we have complexes because we have history and that's what is at where the complex came from so it is um the Technically, it is the image of a certain psychic situation, which is strongly accentuated emotionally and is, moreover, incompatible with the habitual attitude of consciousness. So those are Jung's words. And that is why I try to explain it in my own words, because that it's like, what what is he saying there? So um, they complexes stem from our history. So when we're having a huge emotional reaction to something and the person next to us looks at us like we're crazy, thinking you are, how many times have we heard or said, you're taking this way too seriously? Or why are you so sensitive? Have you heard that before? Or have we said that before? Why are you being so sensitive? Because it's not about what's happening today. It's about something that happened 30 years ago. So if it hasn't been dealt with, if it hasn't been addressed, if it hasn't been processed, if it hasn't been assimilated, then it sits there and it grows and it festers. And it's this sore spot that when it gets poked, it just like poking the bear, right? But it's different than the shadow. Yes. So the shadow we project onto other people. 
the shadow qualities, our shadow qualities are unconscious. So we'll see them in other people. Simply because we're not owning it, we're not seeing it in ourselves, we're going to see it in other people. And again, that's not wrong. That's not bad. It's natural. That's what we do. But if we choose to work on ourselves because maybe our lives are not working as well as we would hope or want them to, then we want to take a look at ourselves. And so we start withdrawing those those uh, projections. And there's also something called um, depotentiating the complex where, and this was the hard part for me anyway, in analysis is working on these core complexes. The way we heal is to go into them, go into the complex and then come out of the complex and talk about it and then go back in. So you're talking about like reliving it or you said while we're in a complex, there's nothing we can do. You sort of have to relive it or is that what you're talking well, about? There's nothing we can do because we don't think we're in it, but the people around us can see it. But we think, no, 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 I'm fine. No, I'm right. I'm fine. There's nothing wrong. I am not in a complex. And that's a sure sign that you're in one. So, how we heal it is, it's kind of like, I guess it's kind of like a staircase or a spiral staircase that goes down. You don't have to go down to the bottom rung next time. You eventually, with work, get to the point where you say, okay, I know what this is. I've been here before. So eventually you start to see you know the signs if you've done work on it. Like if you go to your analyst every week and you're like, you know what, it happened again. So Hollis talks about patterns, looking at your patterns. That is a way that we work on our stuff is we look at our patterns. You know how we keep repeating the same thing over and over again? Oh, yeah. it's sometimes it's like, oh, God, is this the same brick wall I keep running into? So yeah, do I have free will? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that that came up on one uh, that episode with Rick Levine. I still don't remember what he, I. Not that I don't remember. I didn't understand what he said. You know, because we don't know. We have ideas, we have beliefs, but we don't know. Talking about free will now. So, uh, looking at our patterns, the complex. Okay, so eventually we get to the point where we can say, okay, I've been here before. I know what this is. I don't have to go all the way down to the bottom step, to the last step of the, the staircase, all the way down to the bottom. And then we come back up again and we can talk about it or look at it or think about it. But we're going to keep going into that complex until eventually, you know, we heal it. And this isn't something that can be done in six sessions, you know? So that's one of the, I don't want to say drawbacks. It's one of the criticisms or it's one of the things that I think scares people away from analytic work is, you know, is this going to take a lot of time? Yeah. 
you got something better to do than work find, on yourself? Finding yourself, yeah, finding your right. true self. Well, work on yourself so that you don't contaminate everybody around you, your environment, your home, your work, your family, your friends. Now, all that's going to work better if you take responsibility for yourself, your complexes, your shadow integration, um, your if you're in the wrong vocation, figuring that out. That goes back to know thyself. What are your strengths and your weaknesses? So, yeah, and that, and that at the core of every complex is a wound, usually an early childhood wound. And so sometimes it's painful to work on these things. It's usually painful to work on these things. We are at the end. So, Laura, real quick, where can people mm -hmm. find out about your work? Uh, we can visit the website, speakingofyoung.com. Everything's there. You can download or stream all of the episodes from the website. Um, there are links to my guests' websites and books on each episode page. And the podcast is also available on all of the major podcasting platforms like Apple Podcasts and Spotify, iHeartRadio. And I just started putting them on YouTube. I didn't want to do that at first, but what it's enabled me to do is add images. So I just have kind of a slideshow while the show is playing on YouTube. Uh, upload a series of images that are, I mean, sometimes they're not that interesting. Sometimes they're just photos of the guest and book, book covers, but I'm trying to get more and more creative with them. And the one for the episode I just did yesterday with the photographer, we're going to have a lot of his photos in the slideshow of um, all his various series that he's done and this Where We Stand series where he just recently moved to St. Augustine, Florida and found out about the um, largely unknown African-American history of, it's actually the oldest town in America. It was founded in 1545, something like wow, that. Wow, yeah. So that's where you can find it. And um, I'm on social media as Jungian Laura on Twitter and on Facebook. It's facebook.com slash speaking of Jung, but I am Jungian Laura on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. So awesome. thank awesome. you. Well, I've highly recommended for the audience. Uh, again, it. one of my favorite uh, Vance, Thanks for being here. Oh, my pleasure. Love Jung. So, this is interesting. Thank you. Thank you very much, Laura, and have a good evening. You too. Thank you, Miguel. Take care. And there you have it, my beloved truth seekers. The first part of our interview with Laura London. Heresy shouldn't be this much fun, and neither should finding your authentic self. In our second part, we really begin understanding Jungian concepts for your psychic liberation, including synchronicity, the self, more on the shadow, and so much more, and why a weak or no ego is one of the worst tricks of Yaldi Baldi. 
And yes, we get into the seven sermons to the dead, the red book, and the black book. We certainly continue sharing about Jungian analysis and the life of Jung himself, and much, much more. So become an AB Prime or Patreon or Patreon for the full dope. And if you find any value in this podcast, it really helps grow this red pill cafeteria. Only $6.99 a lunar cycle, or whatever you want to pledge on Patreon. You won't find this Gnostic content or many of our guests anywhere in cyberspace or even meat space. Damning your soul has never been this cheap, but you'll get your spirit back. Membership includes full access to the R-Chips with more than 14 years of high-quality interviews. You'll also get an invitation to the Inner Sanctum of Gnosis Facebook group and the Discord channel where past guests like Adrian Smith, Scott Smith, Edward Pandemonium, Joanna Cuyava, Tim Freak, and Chris Bennett hang out there. Part of some mind-expanding, continual conversations. Even support in the form of some shekels to PayPal or the U.S. mail really, really helps. I also have an Amazon wish list, as I always need equipment in this universe of entropy. Don't forget me books, like Voices of Gnosticism or other Voices of Gnosticism. The show has grown to the point advertisers want to appear, but they're rejected as I only work for you and only you. You can do so many wonders, I just know it, I just know it. And you're so full of potential and have the ability to find your soul in this lifetime and bring down the black iron prison. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself, your true self, here in the desert of the real. Hello and goodbye, as always. Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.